Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Thank you, Beth. Good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. Good to see you guys this morning, and happy uh, Thanksgiving week to you guys as well. So we're going to be back in the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 17. So if you've been following the series uh, the last few weeks, it's a short series, three parts, and we're looking at the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens and how he confronts the idolatry of the people of the city of Athens. So Acts chapter 17, and today we're going to be really focusing our time on understanding how God offers truth in a world of, of myth. Now, back in uh, 1902, British author Rudyard Kipling, and you probably know him from his, his story, the, the Jungle Book, but he published a series of children's stories entitled Just So Stories. Maybe you've, you've read them or read them to your children. And these were just humorous anecdotes about how, for example, the, the camel got his hump or how the leopard got his spots, and, and my favorite one was how the elephant got his trunk by sticking his short, stubby little nose too close to the crocodile who grabbed onto it and started to pull, and the crocodile pulled one direction and, and the elephant pulled the other direction, and voila, to, the, to this day, the elephant has a long trunk. It's science, okay? <laughs> it's science. Um, uh, obviously, just so stories are myths, okay, designed intentionally to, to make us smile a little bit. We know better than to believe these myths. We, we do know better, right? Um, maybe not. You see, actually, every culture, every subculture, every group, every subgroup, we, we all have our just-so stories, even the church has some just-so stories, stories that may not be true. We like to tell ourselves these stories at times. Our culture, the world around us, is full of just-so stories. You've probably heard some of these. All roads lead to heaven. All religions, all, all paths lead to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe. You're, you're going to end up in heaven anyway. Believe in yourself. Trust your, yourself. Trust your heart. You can do anything. I don't know how many failed people believe that. Science has all the answers. Answers to, to what, exactly? Uh, the Christian church never did anything good for the world. Have you heard that one? There are a lot of Christians who believe this. But what about universities, public education, hospitals? The Bible is a human book written by human authors and has been corrupted by centuries of rewrites and changes. Another just-so story. A good God would never allow evil to exist, nor would He condemn people to hell. I spent some time with our high schoolers on Monday night trying to unpack that one. It's a tough one. Faith and science or faith and reason are completely incompatible. You can't be an intellectually honest person, a rational person, and believe in God. Morality is a social construct, something invented by society. There are no absolute standards of right and wrong. 
absolutely no absolutes, right? Truthfully, no truth. Truth is a matter of opinion. Nobody knows anything anyway. Or to the contrary, you'll hear people say, well, I can have the whole truth. I can achieve 100% certainty, 100% knowledge of all things. So we, we have our set of just-so stories, stories we, we tell ourselves. Now, these kinds of stories are fairly easily refuted. Okay, there are some very good answers to these kinds of worn-out statements that we hear over and over again. The problem is that our just-so stories are so embedded in our thinking and in our behavior that something more is needed oftentimes, more than just maybe a, a rational or logical response. Well, we got to get to the heart, too. These stories are embedded in people's thinking. It's one thing to pull up a weed, right? It's another thing to take out the root so it doesn't grow back. It's another thing entirely to replace that weed with a viable plant, something you actually want growing, and to see that plant thrive. So as we come to the final part of Acts chapter 17, we will see that God is calling us to replace the old stories with some new ones, okay? Some wrong ideas with right ideas. The light of the gospel has been turned on, and the question is whether we are willing and able to see the true and living God in a world of blind ignorance and myth. So let's go to Acts chapter 17. Now, today we're going to be focusing on verses 29 through 34. This is the very last part of this, this passage, but I do want to read the whole, the whole text just to give you some context in case you, you haven't followed the and the series, this will just fill out the story. So we'll go back to verse 16 today. We'll just start there and, and read to the end of the chapter. Acts 17, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is uh, Silas and Timothy, waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live 
and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And this is where we'll pick it up today. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time together this morning to worship you, to worship you through the instruction of your word. And Lord, as I have been thinking about this passage this week, um, the words of the parable of Jesus in Matthew 13 have come to mind, the seed falling along the, the path and some along the, the, the weeds and some in the fruitful soil. Um, Lord, we pray that your gospel, your truth would fall among our hearts, that we would receive it, um, that we would believe it. Um, Lord, show us Jesus today. Amen. So Paul here concludes his discourse at the Areopagus, that is the, the hill of Ares, Mars Hill, um, the center of, of Athens. He, he concludes his discourse by showing us the true God. Now, in a world of myth, Paul is calling his audience to repentance, okay? This is a call to step out of blindness and into the glorious light. So in a world dominated by myth, Paul is showing the Athenian people Jesus, his death, his resurrection. He's showing them the word made flesh, the image of the invisible God. Now, as we've worked our way through this passage over the last couple of weeks, we've seen, uh, first of all, that the gospel confronts our idols. We've seen that the gospel frustrates the wisdom of the world. Last week, we saw that the gospel answers our deepest longings. The gospel shows us the fullness of God's plan. And today, I want to add two more points to this. The gospel is a call to repentance, and the gospel is truth in a world of myth. First point, God calls all people everywhere to repent. Now, bear in mind that in the previous verses, Paul has situated the gospel message in a historic context. This is important, okay? This is a context in which God created human beings. God prepared those human beings for the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. So for generations, God had mapped out the times, the locations, the cities, the governments, the global powers, so that at just the right time, he would send his son into the world to redeem the world. Now, some have even argued that the political conditions and even the infrastructure under the Pax Romana, under, under the, the Roman peace, that period between about 100 BC and 200 AD, during that time, this was an ideal time 
for the spread of the gospel. It was safe to travel. There were good roads, ships, people could get around. It was a good time for the spread of the gospel. The ubiquity of, of Koine Greek, uh, the, the, the common language at the time, made communication easy throughout North Africa, through Western Asia, through Europe. Conditions were perfect. So as Paul concludes his discourse in verses 29 and 31, that's what we're looking at here, the call is to repentance, okay? Turn from your rebellion against God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, follow him. Now as we noted last week, the message is a complete message of creation, fall, redemption, glorification. To announce the reality of sin is to also present the solution to sin, To announce the invitation to salvation is also to present the natural consequences of rejecting God's grace. This is why Paul talks about judgment here. The time of ignorance is over. God will judge the world. Repent. Believe. Now, you might say that with great knowledge of the gospel comes great responsibility in our response to the gospel. Notice in verse 30, Again, the time of ignorance is over. The time of ignorance is over. The time of agnoia in Greek, agnosticism, ignorance, lack of understanding, that that time has passed. Okay, see, in, in, in the past, the Gentiles were judged in their ignorance. They were judged in their ignorance. Now they are judged in their knowledge and willful rejection of what they ought to do based on their knowledge. I'm inclined to understand God's leniency on the ignorance of the Gentiles in light of what Paul says about himself in, in 1 Timothy 1.13, where he talks about his own life, his own ignorance, that he persecuted the church. And he says that God had mercy on him because he acted in ignorance. So judgment is still coming. God judges ignorance. But it seems that God treated the Gentiles with, with a certain amount of patience in accordance with their ignorance of God's law. God neither sent them his prophets, nor did he utterly destroy them for their sin, for their rebellion. He acted in patience until the time was right. Think of it this way. Now, my children sometimes become frustrated with me because I'm much more lenient on the dog than I am on, their, on them, on their behavior. It's true. If the dog, for example, let's just suppose I've left a plate of breakfast food near the edge of the table and the bacon is accessible. If the dog pilfers bacon from my plate when my back is turned and then looks up at me with her big brown eyes and wags her tail, I'm inclined to just pat her on the head and tell her what a good girl she is. (laughs) What a good girl, good dog that sort of thing. Um, And I smile at her because she's so cute, right? It's a dog. Now, if one of my my children so much as looks at the bacon on my plate, it's gloves off, right? That's how it works. Maybe you guys can relate. I get on their case sometimes about sneezing and not covering their, their mouth or nose when they sneeze, but the dog sneezes all the time. I don't yell at her about it, right? So a natural question arises from this. Why the apparent inconsistency? My children are longing to know the answer to this conundrum, and they're here today, and I'll tell them. 
I've been thinking about this in light of Acts 17. The answer is simple. The dog is stupid. She's a a dog, right? Now, I love the dog, but her primal instincts drive her. Now, she can be trained. Dogs can can be trained. They're, They're smart animals. But it's still a dog, right? It's still a dog. Now, my children, on the other hand, have undergone thorough, extensive education, thorough training, right? They should have figured it out by now. Now, this is not to say that ignorance goes unpunished, again, in in the text. uh, My example is maybe an extreme case for the purpose of illustration, but it's true that judgment in Scripture is often proportionate to sin. Judgment in Scripture is often proportionate to people's knowledge of God and their knowledge of His law. God is slow to anger, abounding in love. He allowed the sin of the wicked Canaanites to fester for 400 years before he smote their ruin, okay? He allowed the sin of the Egyptians to fester for hundreds of years before he judged them. He allowed the people of Athens to walk in darkness of their own making, in their own idolatry for centuries until the day the Apostle Paul shows up with a message The time of ignorance is over. Repent and believe. Paul's telling the Athenian people that God will judge justly according to our moral awareness. He's saying the time has come, you're aware, you know better. You've been warned. Act, therefore, accordingly and repent. All men will give an account before God. We read that in in Romans 14, 12. All men will give an account before God. God calls all people everywhere to repent. Now, we sometimes don't like the word repent because obviously it implies that we're doing something wrong, that we've sinned, that we need to change. We don't naturally respond well to this. It can seem a bit rude. But understand that as Paul preaches to the Athenians, eternity is at stake here. Eternity is at stake. When you recognize that the people around you are objects of wrath, that you yourself are an object of wrath, destined for hell, you don't mince words. This is no joke. See, the call to repentance is not a vicious threat or a mean-spirited accusation or some kind of unjust indictment against people. Repentance, the call to repentance is a blessed mandate. It's a blessed mandate, a call to spiritual bounty, a grace of God. Hebrews 10, 31 tells us it is a dreadful thing, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dreadful thing to have heard the gospel preached and to have never repented and believed, Matthew 13, 3 through 9 It is a dreadful thing to have attended church week after week to hear the truth, to know the truth, and to close our hearts to the grace of God. It is a fearful thing. There are people here this morning, I'm just going to be honest, there may be people here this morning who do not know Jesus Christ, who have never put their faith in him. Jesus himself invites you, commands you to repent and believe in him, and you will be saved. Acts 16, 31. It's a promise. 
There are people here this morning who have wandered from the truth. Jesus invites us. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You will be saved. There's no use mincing words here. The stakes are too high. God calls all people everywhere to repent. And if we want to know how to apply this message this morning, you want the application, here it is. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Be convicted of sin. Be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Be transformed by His holiness. Be humbled by His grace. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's the first point. We're not done yet. (laughs) Point number two. All right, the gospel is truth in a world of myth. I want you to pay attention in this passage, uh, particularly verse 32, the, the reaction of the Areopagites to the message that is preached, to this message of repentance. Okay, keep in mind the Areopagites, those are the Areopagus. These are the cultural elite of Athens. These are the philosophers, the Epicureans, the, the Stoics, the Platonic thinkers, the Aristotelians, whatever, the, 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 the political and, and philosophical cultural influencers of the time. And Paul is telling them to believe in Jesus Christ, to to repent and believe, and he speaks of the death and the glorious resurrection of Jesus. And here's what happens. Verse 32, some of them mocked. Kluazo is the word in Greek. They sneered, they kluazo, they, they made sport of Paul. They sneered at him. They mocked the concept of the resurrection of Jesus as a foolish, irrational concept. The idea that Jesus, the the God-man, might be raised from the dead by the power of God himself was absurd and disgusting to these enlightened people. That God so loved the world, that God would, would send his one and only son to suffer and die and be raised to life, this was a shocking and asinine prospect. The Greeks of Athens, you see, were were not so easily duped into believing silly notions. Athens was the home of the great warrior philosophers, okay? These were founders of democracy, scientists, innovators. Men like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the peripatetic, had shaped the world through their thought. They had invented professional academics. Men like Pericles, a political leader of Athens, brought democracy, right? Made made Athens one of the greatest of all the the Greek city-states. The Athenian fleet had held a massive Persian invasion at bay, had stopped it. The Athenian people were, were not people to be trifled with. This was the pinnacle of civilization, greater than Rome itself, okay? The Romans borrowed things. They stole things from other cultures. The Athenians invented this stuff. They knew things that previous generations didn't know. To think that they would believe a silly notion such that Jesus, the divine son, died and was raised to life, how how absurd. Now, the Greeks of Athens were, as I said, above foolish ghost stories. They believe something much more rational, something much more credible about the origins of the universe. Let me explain to you what the the Greeks believed. 
They believed in a pantheon of gods who originated with Gaia, the world mother. She was the very first of the gods, the first tier, first level. Okay, and according to the rational and informed Greeks, Gaia birthed the Titans, the second level of gods, these primal cosmic entities. She birthed them through her sexual union with Uranus, the god of the sky. Okay, all but Aphrodite. Aphrodite's a different story. She was the goddess of love and sex and beauty and that sort of thing. She was actually birthed, she, she sprang out of the ocean after the severed genitals of Uranus were, were thrown into the sea by Kronos, his son. But that's a different, different story. But anyway, the, the intelligent and enlightened Greeks believed in these, in these titans, and chief among the titans was Kronos. Now, somehow, Kronos received a prophecy. Nobody really knows where it came from because there weren't too many people around at the time. But he received a prophecy that one of his offspring would one day usurp him, take over his, his place as the chief among the titans. And so he did what any intelligent cosmic entity, entity would do in a situation like this. He devoured his children. He ate them to prevent the prophecy from coming true. So eight of Kronos' children were, were, were eaten this way. Okay, so finally, according to the intellectual and, and rational Greeks, Mrs. Kronos had had enough of this, popping out child after child just to watch her husband devour them. So when her youngest, little, little Zeus, came along, she wrapped up a rock in some baby clothes and fed it to her husband. Now, apparently he couldn't tell the subtle differences between an inanimate stone and divine flesh. So he just, he scarfed it down. And this is what the erudite and intellectual Greeks uh, believed at the time. You can look this stuff up in a mythology book if, if you want. Now, to protect her child um, from, from Kronos, Rhea, that is uh, Mrs. Kronos, hid baby Zeus on the island of Crete, where he was nursed in a cave by a she-goat, okay? And he was fed magic honey from a swarm of mystical bees. And eventually he grew up, and when he was old enough to seek revenge on his, his father, he set off to fulfill the prophecy. And in a rage, he cut open his father's intestines and freed his, his siblings who had somehow grown to adulthood over hundreds of years while slowly being in, digested by their father. Um, Zeus, uh, the first and the greatest among the gods of Olympus, declared war on the Titans, and he defeated them using his magic lightning bolts, and he cast the fallen Titans down into Tartarus, a sweltering vortex of hellish damnation to suffer for eternity. Then it gets better. As Zeus was sitting on his throne on Mount Olympus one day, thinking about how awesome he was, suddenly Athena just burst out of his forehead in full battle armor and flew down to earth to kill people and to found the city of Athens, okay? Aren't you blown away by the sheer logic, the sheer coherency of ancient Greek theology? It all makes perfect sense. But the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how absurd, right? How, how quaint. Now, I don't tell this to, to, to poke fun 
necessarily at, at, at Greek thought or any thought for that matter. The, the, the reality is people get this stuff ingrained in them. It just becomes a part of your life. Mythology becomes real. You just live in it. You, you, you walk in it. And are we any different today? You think about the myths we tell ourselves, the just-so stories we tell ourselves today. What does the intelligentsia of 21st century America believe? That one day in, in the cosmic chaos, science, the chief among the primordial minds appeared to primitive men and taught them how to worship the universe, our eternal God. The universe through its union with our beloved goddess, Mother Earth, ironically formed us through slow, mindless, unguided processes and miraculously imparted consciousness to us, though she herself lacks consciousness. She gave us a sense of moral responsibility, though she herself is amoral. She gave us a sense of purpose, though she herself has none. She nursed us on our hopes and dreams and ideas to live our truth so that by our own resolve we will one day attain eternal life by transplanting our immaterial consciousness into a cybernetic organism of our own creation, thus becoming gods ourselves, or, or something like that. I mean, that's, you hear this stuff, right? It makes perfect sense, but the historical fact of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ... How absurd. How quaint. Nearly any idea, and this is my point here, nearly any idea can appear absurd when considered in light of the established views of the culture. This stuff just becomes embedded in who we are, how we think. It shouldn't surprise us that the gospel is an affront to the paradigms of our culture. Just as, as the gospel defied the just-so stories of the ancient Greek world with the truth of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so also it's an affront to our modern sensibilities. It's offensive. Again, ideas that are embedded in our culture and in our hearts are difficult to uproot. It, it's just that way. Pulling the weed is relatively easy. Getting to the root, that's another thing. Replacing that with a new concept, a new belief, a new vision of reality is a whole nother level. See, Paul is asking the Athenians to adjust to something new, to adjust to something uncomfortable, the gospel. He's presenting them with a new vision of ultimate reality. So when we preach the gospel and trust the Spirit to work, old embedded ideas will be uprooted and replaced. And we've got old Myths in our hearts, too, that need to be re-examined. I think we all do. What are those lies? What are those myths that need to be pulled up and replaced with truth? When the light is turned on, sometimes we squint a little bit, adjusting. It takes time. So what are these just-so stories of our culture? What are the just-so stories we hear in the church? What are the just-so stories we tell ourselves over and over again? See, our call, again, is to replace them. In a world of myth, we need the truth of the gospel. Do not remain blind to the gospel. As I mentioned earlier, God will not overlook our ignorance. The time of ignorance is past. So I invite you 
If you have never humbled yourself and turned your eyes to Jesus Christ, do so. Do so now. God calls all people everywhere to repent. And he promises that those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we again thank you for your word. Um, your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts to the heart. Lord, would you work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. If there are stories that we've told ourselves, would you uproot those stories, Lord? Would you replace it with the truth? Lord, we need you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to a time of communion. And I'm actually going to invite up one of our elders, Brian Douglas. He's going to lead us through this time of reflection. And I really want to invite you guys to use this time of celebrating communion to, to ponder the truths we've heard from God's word today.